Hello, Energy Gang listeners. Stephen Lacey here. A couple brief housekeeping items before we start this week's show. Firstly, the Energy Gang is on summer hiatus for the next couple of weeks. We'll be back together on the week of August 22nd. And that brings us to our second order of business. Our conversation this week comes to you from The Interchange, a weekly show hosted by me and Shale Khan for our premium service, GTM Squared. We have thousands of subscribers now, and I'm just going to be blunt. You should subscribe too. I know that many of you run businesses, you run consultancies, you make policy, you're looking for a job in the industry, and if that's the case, GTM Squared is a no-brainer. $249. That's what it costs per year. $249. That's like 68 cents a day. That's virtually nothing to pay for a continued education in clean tech. So if you like this podcast, you like GTM, and you want to go even further in depth, go over to greentechmedia.com squared. And finally, a big thanks to our energy gang sponsor, Solar Edge. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. And now enjoy the show. This is The Interchange, a weekly conversation about the changing business of energy and clean tech from GTM Squared. I'm Stephen Lacey, and in this week's show, we're revisiting clean tech venture capital. We're more than a decade on from the beginning of the clean tech gold rush, and a lot of VC firms failed to strike it rich. We'll chat about one of the most comprehensive tallies of the boom and bust in clean tech VC and look at how it compares with other sectors. Shale Khan is my co-host as always. Howdy, Shale. How are you? Hey, Stephen. Great. How are you? Good. And this week, we have two guests with us. One you've heard from before. Varun Sivaram is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations with an expertise in renewables, physical sciences, and entrepreneurship. Hello, Varun. Welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. And also with us is Ben Gaddy, the Director of Technology Development for the Clean Energy Trust. Before that, Ben was a fellow at the Department of Energy's Clean Energy Manufacturing Initiative. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be on with you guys. Yeah, we're excited to have you both on. Both of you are periodic contributors to GTM as well, so we'll link to some of their work in the show notes at Green Tech Media. And most recently, Ben and Varun teamed up with another colleague, Frank O'Sullivan from the MIT Sloan School of Management, to log the performance of venture investments in clean energy and materials from 2006 to 2011, and then compare it to the medical field and software. They found that the failure rate in clean tech was much higher than these other two fields and that the returns were much lower. Their conclusion, venture capital is not the right model for revolutionizing the energy industry. So if that's true, what should take its place? And they try to answer that question. Um, I guess I'll start with a really basic question first, and Ben, I'll turn it over to you. Why write this report in the first place? So look, Ultimately, we're going to need new technologies if we have any hope of meeting our CO2 emissions goals by the year 2050. And fundamentally, there's still this valley of death between publicly funded university and national lab research and development 
and market-ready solutions. So government research can really only go so far. And at the same time, corporations have, in general, retrenched their R&D spending. They've been forced to focus on short-term performance. So you're seeing R&D budgets being slashed in corporations. So in 2006, 2007, uh, sort of as we went into this cleantech investing bubble, venture capital played a huge role in bridging this valley of debt. So from 2004 to 2008, total venture funding for cleantech rose from about $1 billion to over $5 billion. And in that same period of time, we went from less than 10 cleantech A-round deals per year to over 100 in 2008. Um, but then the sort of funding collapsed, right? In 2008, uh, we had the credit crunch, which hurt venture capital as an industry um, in, in total. We saw a little bit of a rebound uh, in 2011 and 2012, but that money was really only going into existing companies, existing deals. A-round investments in clean tech really got hit. So after 2008, the number of new venture-funded companies dropped down to about 25 per year and has stayed relatively constant. So we wanted to look at what the world looks like today. How does a breakthrough energy innovation get funded? So what we decided to do was look at A-round investments uh, from the period 2006 to 2011, and we decided to compare clean tech to software and medical technology investments to sort of benchmark what was happening in, in that period. And I'll say that for those listeners who aren't entirely attuned to the niche clean tech investing scene, the news coming out of the clean energy sector can tend to be very positive. You know, in 2015, Bloomberg New Energy Finance reported that $349 billion were invested in total in clean energy. The problem is, as Ben alluded to, only $4 billion this year was in VC, and that's an increase over prior years. Um, we also see that there's vanishingly little investment in new materials, chemicals, and manufacturing processes. This is alarming. From my perspective, from Ben's perspective, uh, I urge you to read a piece that Tara Norris and I put out on why clean energy investment is important uh, in innovation in particular, because we need new physical science technologies in clean tech. Um, Bill Gates prioritizes solar paint, solar fuels, energy storage, and nuclear, and those get a lot of press. But we also need R&D in high ambient temperature air conditioning, supercritical CO2 turbines, enhanced geothermal systems. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and without the investment flowing into uh, innovation, in addition to deployment, we're not going to get there. So I, I got to say, I have a few sort of issues to take with this piece. And it's not, I don't think, around the ultimate aim that you guys seem to have, which is, if I have it right, it's basically you think, as you just said, Varun, you need, we need more investment. And we also need more investment that's sort of patient capital that can take a long-term view and things like that. I think all of that, uh, at least I agree with, and I think most people in the clean tech community would agree with, but the framing of this paper and in fact, the title is Venture Capital and Clean Tech, The Wrong Model for Clean Energy Innovation. And even in the abstract, you say that the VC model is broken in clean tech. And it doesn't really feel to me like you've actually made that case in the paper. So I'm interested to sort of, for a second, before we get into like, what are the policy implications? What do we actually want to see more of? Um, I think we need to dissect whether the, clean, the VC model is broken in clean tech because you take this data series of five years of data from 2006 to 2011 which admittedly was a pretty dark period for clean tech vc a ton of money went in largely on a couple of what turned out to be 
bad bets, you know, solar module manufacturers and biofuels companies. Um, a lot of those failed. So VCs lost a bunch of money. But it feels to me like that period of time, that was the worst period for clean tech VC. It's like looking at, you know, you compared it to software returns. Like what if the period when you had looked at software VC was like 1998 to 2002? You know, why select 2006 to 2011 as opposed to something more recent where I think, you know, without having the data in front of me, I could certainly point to a whole bunch of examples of successful VC exits in clean tech that have happened well after 2011. Just feels like a dated sort of strategically selected data set to me. Let's be clear. Um, exits can happen after 2011 in this data set and we will count them. It's This is a round investments between 2006 and 2011. And it's, I think, a very valid uh, objection to make that did we cherry pick our selection window such that we only had the failures and we missed some of the early successes. So for example, Tesla Motors is not considered uh, in our data set. That seems like a big omission. And so we go into this in the report and what we say is the 2006 to 2011 period really encapsulates the boom in VC investment in clean tech. Um, with only a couple exceptions, prior to 2006, there was a trickle of investment into uh, truly innovative companies. Um, and between 2006 and 2011, we also think that there was a tremendous amount of investment in these physical science, uh, new materials, chemicals, and processes companies uh, that we don't see afterwards. So if our thesis really at the end of the day is going to be to evaluate the VC model as it relates to physical science companies, and that's what we focus on, um, we actually think this is the only time period we could be looking at. Um, we did play around with increasing the bounds of our time period between 2005 and 2004 and looking later on 2012 and 13. And there are a couple reasons uh, why we landed on this particular period. One reason is that if we pick an end date that's too late, we don't have enough time to evaluate whether the companies have exited or not. Uh, the most recent investment uh, may have been made too recently and we have no idea whether the company is going to exit or fail. Um, and so again, just because this period happens to be the only historical period we found that had a significant increase in investment, especially in physical science companies, uh, we didn't think it was retroactive selection bias to choose that window. We think, frankly, this is the period we want to be evaluating clean tech on. Just to clarify uh, the data that we're looking at. So the time period 2006 to 2011, that's the date of the company's A-round investment. Um, so we are looking at a number of companies that were sort of founded and first funded in that 2006 to 2011 window. And as Varun mentioned, you know, that puts it at the time the data was collected at the end of 2014. That means that some of the latest companies that got investment had about three years to show some success. Right. But I, it still feels to me like what you've done is you've you've made a good case that there was a boom in investment and that that boom did not lead to a bunch of results. But then your conclusion is that the entire VC model for clean tech, I mean, I get that you're sort of focusing in on sort of physical materials and things like that, but that's not sort of how it's framed. Your headline and the abstract and most of the text in the report is talking about the venture capital model for clean tech is broken. And showing that there was, you know, a single boom that didn't yield value for investors in any large way doesn't seem to me to then draw a conclusion that is this model is broken and it won't work. And I do think that, I mean, I take your point about, you know, you could have some of these companies that were founded during that period and, um, 
and exited later, which is certainly true. I do think also there are a lot of companies that have seen successes that were founded well after 2011 and have already exited as well. So even given that, it feels to me like it's a particularly negative period to look at in an industry that I think has, and as, as you pointed out, sort of capital is increasing again now. So it just, again, it feels to me like a period that just was a the early days, the first boom bust. And, and to assume that the model will never work seems like a different story to me. We think that um, the model as currently framed is not going to work for many of the clean tech subsectors that we study. To preview one of our later conclusions, if a clean tech company looks like a software company, the VC model may work just fine for it. But if a clean tech company looks like any of the other four subsectors that we consider, including materials and chemicals, but also innovative hardware, we do think that there are aspects of the, of the VC model that just aren't going to work, that need to be uh, tweaked. And I think that's a valid and valuable conclusion to draw even from this particular boom and bust cycle. We wish we had more years of high investment in clean tech to look at, uh, but given the constraints of our methodology, we didn't think we could find them. So one of the interesting things that we did in this paper was to separate out clean tech investments into five distinct subcategories. And this is a little bit, I think, what you're getting at, Shale. So we split it out to materials, chemicals, and processes as one category, hardware integration as another. So that's sort of taking components that already exist and integrating them in some new way, software and software appliances, deployment finance startups that were venture funded. Most of those are not venture funded, but there were some. Um, and then other clean tech, which can include things like um, energy efficiency consulting services or recycling services. And what the data showed is that only the software and software appliance category returned money to investors. So we're not even talking about return on capital. We're, re we're talking about return of capital. And what happened in that period that we looked at um, is the allocation that the venture capitalists that were still investing in the sector made to each of those five subsectors dramatically shifted from 2004, 2005, 2006, where there was a lot of investment in new materials, new chemicals and processes. So that's some of those solar companies, that's some of those biofuels companies. Um, and then through 2012, 2013, those materials and chemicals com investments and hardware investments made up less than 25% you know, of total venture deals. So what we're really seeing here is that the venture capitalists saw the same thing, right? There's a reason that this retrenchment happened. The venture capitalists realized that something about this model wasn't working. And we essentially identify four reasons that the venture capital model didn't work for these companies. First is that a lot of these were illiquid. Um, some of the companies that got investment were still many years away from being commercially ready. And so it tied up capital for longer than the three to five years that is typical for a venture capital investment. Second, a lot of these materials and chemicals companies were very expensive to scale. So even the ones that raised huge amounts of money spent hundreds of millions of dollars to build factories while they were still doing R&D. Third, there's little room for error in this space. Uh, a lot of these companies were competing in commodity markets, whether that's an energy generation technology that's selling electricity as a commodity, or a solar, pan solar panel manufacturer that is selling solar panels into a commodity market. So that made it very difficult for these companies to invest in continued research and development. Finally, one of the biggest conclusions that we've come to is that the acquirers in this space were simply not there in the way that they were in software and medical technologies. 
So the utilities and industrial giants that were, would be the likely acquirers value profits and not growth. And so a lot of these companies pursued growth and were continuing to, to develop their research and development, but weren't profitable. And so those likely acquirers weren't willing to, to spend based on the company's growth potential the way they often are in software. Let's stop the show right here and talk about one company that has been very successful in raising capital and in going public, and that is Solar Edge, a leading inverter and power optimization company. Solar Edge is, of course, the sponsor of the Energy Gang, and the company is branding itself as the key to the smart home. You see, solar PV systems, they're not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal. They now have brains. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It's an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring, and now also batteries and home load management devices. What's the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems? The inverter. On the horizon is a future where the smart Solar Edge inverter controls the smart home, connected to the grid and to the cloud, that controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances, all in concert. Smart PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy, visit SolarEdge.com. And now, back to the show. Uh, I guess a couple points that I would make in response to that. First, I do think it's interesting to sort of split out the different sub-segments of, of clean tech, and certainly the data that you guys looked at showed a ton of money. I mean, the, the, certainly the largest portion invested in the what you call material, chemicals, and process technologies um, that made very little money, and then less invested in all the other things. I do think if you expanded the horizons of what you were looking at, it would show a different story. Just thinking of solar, for example, off the top of my head, I could name a bunch of hardware companies that have actually seen VC investment and success exits outside of the period that you were looking at. So Next Tracker got bought for a lot of money with outside the period. Zep Solar got bought by Solar City. Uh, Salevo got bought by Solar City. Those were all pretty successful exits, I think, outside this period. And then, you know, deployment and finance. Daintree Networks got bought by GE. Saft, the French energy storage company, got bought by Total for a billion dollars. Yeah, and then in deployment and finance is also a place where you don't see much in the way of returns, but um, one would presume that IPOs from companies like SolarCity and Sunrun would have showed up in there. First Wind got bought for a lot of money by Sun Edison at some point. So I, I have a hard time imagining that the data would look exactly the same if you were able to look back a little further and more importantly, look forward further. Um in addition to that, I think I'm interested in the point about there not being acquirers out there. I think you're right to an extent about there not being acquirers out there for some of the materials companies. But I would say that, if again, if we're talking about clean tech in general, we've actually seen a ton of recent acquisitions, largely from some of the conglomerates. Stephen just mentioned GE and Total. Um, but also from utility affiliates. We're, on, we're in a wave of utility affiliates. The unregulated sides of utilities acquiring cleantech companies. Duke, Southern Company bought Power Secure. Duke bought REC Solar. Edison International has bought four companies now just in a row. NextEra bought Smart Energy Capital. Like it, there's a lot of that going on. And, you know, I wonder what this, this sort of notion that there, there aren't acquirers out there, is it that there aren't acquirers out there for the the big hardware sort of materials intensive stuff or do you just feel like 
all those that that wave of utility affiliate acquisitions we're seeing just isn't enough. I'll say in response, Shale, it's certainly the case that we can name a lot of uh, recent acquisitions and partnerships. Um, I'll add to those Exxon and Fuel Cell Energy, G Ventures invested in Sun and Battery. There was a recent investment by Motorola in a magnesium battery startup, Pelion. So, so, so I buy that there are good examples we can talk about. But one of the things we did in this study was to be comparative between the clean tech sector and other sectors. And what we found were just large differences um, in aggregate between uh, corporate investment in the other two sectors and in the clean tech sector. And I think that's going to be true both in the period we studied as well as the period that you're talking about. And it's going to be particularly true in the materials, chemicals, and processes subsector that we zoom in on. Um, it is still the case, even if we can name several examples of recent partnerships, it's still the case that utilities on the whole spend less than a percent on R&D. Uh, Financial Times reports that oil companies have dropped their R&D spend by 15 to 20 percent, and there really aren't commensurate increases in external partnerships as in-house R&D has continued uh, to remain low. So I still think that there is a large gap between the clean tech sector corporate activity and that in other sectors. The two that we studied here are the ones that VCs have uh, focused on, software and the biomedical industry. And those kind of provided us benchmarks for where clean tech kind of needs to get to. Ben and I strongly believe, Ben, ben Frank and I strongly believe that corporate activity is going to be one of the crucial uh, levers to increase returns in uh, the clean tech space. I think the first report that I recall seeing on this was in 2010 when the clean energy group, Ken Lachlan, who was over there, partnered with Bloomberg New Energy Finance to write a report on bridging the valley of death in clean tech. And they clearly laid out why venture capital wasn't the uh, best way to help pre-commercial technologies scale. There are just inherent limitations in the VC model. And so people have been talking about this for a long time. I will say that your recommendations are a lot different than their recommendations. Um, they were calling for the Clean Energy Deployment Administration. We've since seen ARPA-E really scale up to take its place. They were calling for reverse auction mechanisms where you you know, you know have public support for a utility who may allow companies with novel technologies to bid in for a fixed price contract under, you know, some sort of small utility level program. You have uh, efficacy insurance for companies, so a public-private partnership to backstop companies that are inherently risky. You guys are talking about um, things like what Bill Gates is doing, which, uh, you know, nobody was really talking about at this time, and that is to really deploy a lot of patient capital. And you, now you've seen some of the world's top billionaires, tech billionaires, come in with money and say, like, we understand the inherent limitations in deploying new energy technologies, so let's try to fill that gap. You've got ARPA-E. You've now seen the success of loan guarantees, and the Department of Energy is trying to build off of that success and learn from its mistakes. So just you know, walk me through what you're trying to do differently here, given that this is not exactly a new conversation. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest things to note here is how much the landscape has changed since 2008 or, or 2010. Look at programs like LabCorp, which attempts to bring uh, sort of Steve Blank Lean Business Model Canvas to national lab researchers. We've seen Cyclotron Road have its pilot program. Um, so this is a a program where 
bright young researchers bring their technologies into the lab. So they're sort of spinning these technologies into the lab. They get to take advantage of lab resources and lab expertise. And that's hugely valuable for these entrepreneurs because it means they don't have to go out and spend $3 million to buy their own growth chamber. They can take advantage of what already exists at the lab. So that lets them stay capital efficient. It lets them delay the amount of time they have to wait before they have to go out and raise equity capital. We're also seeing the rise of incubators and accelerators. So Clean Energy Trust is an example. There are you know, Greentown Labs in Boston. There's Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. There's Austin Technology Incubator. We're seeing these support structures come into, come into being that were not really there in 2006, 2007. And that fills an important gap because in addition to providing capital, venture capital investment also provides a great deal of guidance and expertise. So if venture capital isn't investing in these early stage companies, they're missing that critical expertise. And it's been really nice to see the rise of these accelerators and incubators to fill that knowledge gap. On top of that, I'll say what's new here really is a focus on the importance of the corporate sector. Um, and we think we bring that out with the comparison with the biomedical sector. You know, we can say, hey, clean tech is capital intensive and illiquid, so that's why software might do better under the traditional VC model. But why does biomedical, why do biomedical investments do so well in comparison to uh, fundamentally similar clean tech investments that are commercializing fundamental breakthroughs in the lab? And the reason we found was that corporate support is really important. And we really want to say that this is a new theme that arises from the results of this report. I'll give you some examples. In the biomedical sector, 64% of drugs approved in 2005 or, or 2015 originated in small companies and startups, not in the large corporate uh, giants. Uh, those corporate entities now have multiple models to support startups because they're becoming quite sophisticated about it. They can jointly license or develop biomedical products. They can strategically invest and put equity stakes, or they can acquire. This level of sophistication, let alone interest in startups, doesn't exist uh, in the clean tech sector. So, so, so that's one novel takeaway. We want to emphasize corporates. And a couple clean tech startups have started to do this very well. Uh, in particular, I highlighted on the CFR blog, a company called NetPower, which is doing uh, a cool new uh, natural gas power plant that uses supercritical carbon dioxide as a working fluid. Net Power uses turbines from Toshiba. They use equity investments from CBNI and Exelon. And the corporate expertise has been instrumental for them to get where they are, uh, which is building a demonstration project in Texas. Uh, the last thing I'll say is our conclusion is not all we need is patient capital. And I think Ben made this point very well in his Green Tech Media article. Um, I think our results, if anything, show that even if you have an influx of patient capital, including capital from the Breakthrough Energy Coalition that Bill Gates leads, and you have disintermediation such that you don't have the venture capital firm uh, skimming off some of the returns off already bounded returns, it's still not the case that you can invest like a VC does and make returns. That's, what we, that's why we're arguing that the VC model is broken. Our data shows that clean tech companies, at least in this period that Shale's pointing out as a potential objection, clean tech companies are riskier and offer lower returns than other sectors. And so even an influx of patient capital may not break those trends. So Ben and I argue that 
startups need to be uh, able to access a pool of capital that doesn't start a countdown clock on them and that allows them to operate in a lean manner. For example, shared resources with the federal government through programs like Cyclotron Road or through grant programs like ARPA-E. It's really important that we extend the lifetime of startups that are operating on these sources of public or in some cases public slash private capital that do not impose the pressure that VCs impose on them and in any event would not expect the returns that even patient capital would expect once you add in the discounts required for the illiquidity and length of investment. But then aren't you arguing here that it, it's not the VC model that's broken, it's that we need other options. So the VC model works for what it does. It has historically operated under a strict set of parameters, and clean tech doesn't fit within that. But that doesn't mean that VC is broken. It just means that it's one part of a many-pronged solution, and those other solutions may inherently come from better government backstops and beefier support out of the government labs and innovation programs. Yeah, that's 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 two ways of saying the same thing. I, I, I completely agree with you, Stephen. I don't mean to say the VC model is broken. Um, 2015 was a banner year for VC in general. Uh, it just wasn't for VC and clean tech, and in particular, materials, chemicals, and processes. Uh, the final thing I'll say is uh, Ben Frank and I really want to stress the point, and this may not be novel, but we really think it's important and isn't well acknowledged, that innovation is not a linear process. We've moved away from linear innovation models, and government support in our policy recommendations needs to be flexible needs to include regional innovation hubs. It needs to include corporate consortia that get these private actors involved. There have been a lot of great ideas, uh, including uh, independent federally chartered corporations for demonstration support. We don't walk away from those recommendations, but we do say that public policy needs to adopt a holistic approach to supporting innovation, not just supporting the front end of innovation where you have basic R&D programs, but in addition, having demonstration support, and creating initial markets. Much like those recommendations you earlier cited would do, uh, we think they can be refined but still accomplish the same thing, which is create these initial stepping stone markets for clean tech uh, innovative technologies to get their first scale. As Varun mentioned, you know, we're not arguing that, clean, that venture capital is, is a completely broken model for the things that it's suitable for. Um, as we show in the paper, the clean tech companies that are essentially software companies operating in the clean energy space actually turn out that they can be a very good investment from a venture capitalist's limited, sort of time-limited perspective. Um, and, and the other point that, that you made, um, which is suggesting that VC may be appropriate but not sufficient, you know, there may be some truth to that. But when we think about the way the venture capital model is applied to software, you know, two guys and their dog in a garage come up with an idea. They go out and get seed funded. They, you know, they go out and get some users. They get some traction. They raise an A round, a B round, and start scaling their company. You know, that model won't work for a hardware companies for for the reasons you've identified. So, you know, is there a time when equity capital can come into the picture, even for a hardware company or a materials company? Absolutely. But the idea that you're going to spin out an idea and go raise seed A, B, C round funding in the same way that a software company does when you're trying to develop a new solar panel, I think that model fundamentally is broken and 
you know, people tried it in the first boom and it didn't work. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, at least in a lot of cases, the government has been doing a pretty good job of that. Uh, Maybe you could expand upon it, but just to take a few of those things that you talked about and give some specific examples, like the Sunshot program has provided a lot of funding that doesn't have VC requirement returns on it for early stage solar companies, whether they be hardware or software deployment. They've done some of all of that. And on the back end of it, if you want to talk about sort of helping create markets, I think the loan guarantee program has been really effective in helping to get some newer technologies, pilot projects and proof of concepts and things like that. You know, again, I don't disagree with you that we want all of this stuff. I just, I just still, I'm not convinced that the VC model is broken here. I think it's insufficient um, in clean tech, but it does not feel to me based on even the data that you did provide that that's a case that that VC doesn't work in clean tech. It may just be that VC isn't sufficient to get clean tech to where we want it to be from a climate perspective, which is, I think, where the value of all these other sources of capital lies as a supplement. And I'll respond to your push, Shale, to acknowledge some of the fantastic things that the Obama administration has done and note where we can improve. Um, you know, the, This is a political season, and I think uh, credit should be given where it's due. Um, there's some great examples of the federal government adapting to the lessons that they've learned over the over time. So, for example, ARPA-E initially uh, required that co- companies that they funded or ideas that they funded achieve a cost share very early on in that first year. And they eventually revised that policy, understanding that private cost share, especially when it came from venture capitalists, would begin this countdown clock to exit. And as a result, the federal government became more flexible in the sorts of early stage ventures that it would fund. I think that's a great thing. Shale, you mentioned the Loan Programs Office. And you know, for all the bad press that Solyndra gets, it's important to note that the Loan Programs Office uh, overall you know, made returns, return money to taxpayers. Ben and I actually have a different pro- problem with it. We think that it wasn't risky enough. And unfortunately, um, in addition to funding Uh, commercially available technologies to a degree that I personally think was excessive, the loan program office now is politically hobbled because of some of the bad press that it received uh, during the Solyndra years. And so that's why it's important to find new models to support demonstration, not because the loan programs office is ill-conceived, but rather because there are some real political constraints against it uh, using the kind of heft that it once could to support innovative technologies. And so other ideas for this, um, could include some of the proposals that we mentioned, uh, a a non-politically constrained independent body, regional bodies like those that um, Richard Lester at MIT has proposed, or even international partnerships uh, like the uh, China-US Clean Energy Research Coalition, CERC, in which uh, countries like China are going to be able to provide demonstration sites and facilities for joint collaboration and research. Yeah, just to, I wanted to add to what Varun said, so RPE's budget is about $300 million a year. DARPA's, by contrast, is about $3 billion. So you can see sort of the, the, amount of, the amount of resources that are going into DARPA. If we had those going into energy, um, I mean, that would just be really transformational for the sector. Um, and then finally, to, sort of to wrap up my thoughts, I think one of the worst things that could happen for the clean energy sector is if patient capital invested in exactly the same way that venture capital did and saw the same results. Um, If we simply allocated more 
money over a longer period of time, but didn't have fundamental changes in the way those companies and technologies are supported outside of just capital, uh, we would see a whole new class of investors that would go through a boom and bust and would leave the sector high and dry. We certainly respect the role that venture capitalists have played in developing the clean energy innovation ecosystem. You know, folks like John Doerr and Vinod Khosla, they have been inspiring. They have brought attention to the importance of innovation. There are some new and prominent voices like Bill Gates that are continuing to push uh, that agenda. We don't want to downplay those efforts at all. For, for, for both Ben and me, there is a personal element here. We both worked on innovative uh, technologies. I personally worked at NanoSolar, at Twin Creeks Technologies, both innovative solar companies. And we've seen up close and personal what happens when uh, a company is forced to ramp up manufacturing prematurely, to build a factory, and to try and deliver returns based on investor expectations that fit other sectors. That's uh, one of the things that inspired us to sit down and write this report about what lessons we can learn for the next time around. Well, I think you guys did a great job defending the report here. It is a very good read, an important accounting of what has happened in the venture capital space, and um, you know, a good, a good contextual conversation to to really point out the limitations of venture capital, but to also point out its role among many different support mechanisms, both public and private. So, thank you both. And I forgot to mention that there was one more good venture capital story. Uh, that was out in the news in the last couple of weeks, and that was that um, GTM got acquired by Wood McKenzie, which is a, a Verisk analytics company, you know, part of the uh, S&P 500. So, you know, GTM's acquisition is a good venture capital story, too. Hey, congratulations to GTM. We're thrilled for you guys, and we hope you continue to do the good work you do, especially on the energy gang and the interchange. Well, thank you so much, and it was a pleasure having you both on. Varum Sivaram is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Ben Gaddy is the Director of Technology Development at the Clean Energy Trust. With Shail Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, a podcast from GTM Squared. We'll catch you next time.